Good morning, everybody. I am so thankful for both Paul and Kimberly sharing this this idea of this change of ledger, this idea of blamelessness, because today I'm going to get into a lot of trouble. The two things they tell you never to talk about at Thanksgiving are politics and religion. As Christians, we already have one strike against us. Today I talk about both. Yay, me. (laughs) This last week we have studied as we've been going through the Word of God. For those of you who are new here, we've been going through the Word of God in five years period of time. We are... um, currently in the Psalms, and we're doing Psalms a little bit differently as we're not going in order, but we're kind of going through categories. And this past week, we have been doing the royal or the enthronement Psalms. And this is about the earthly king, his relationship to God, and and the relationship, therefore, to our praise to God as a result of the earthly king. And of course, the earthly king in in the Psalms is talking about the kings of Judah, the kings of Israel, during the time that the kingdom of God was there, that God had established during the monarchy. And so the title of this sermon is called, How Rulers Affect the Worship of God, because God cares about the rulers that are over us. He wants godly rulers Not just for the people of Israel, but for our country as well. For our country, for our city, for our state. For our country, state, and city. That's probably the better order, right? Um, But you and I need to take seriously this idea that God cares about who is over us. Because he does. And how we react to it. We're going to be looking today specifically, I mean, this this past week we have looked at a number of different psalms. We looked at Psalm 18, which talked about uh, David after he had been rescued from Saul and establishing his kingdom. And we see this long praise that God has brought him into the kingdom, 50 verses long. Then we look at Psalm 20 and Psalm 21. We look at Psalm 45, which was from the sons of Korah, that talked about a wedding. And honestly, what it did was it not just looked at a wedding from a king's perspective, but the ultimate wedding between Christ and his bride. It's referenced in Hebrews chapter 1. We look at Psalm 61, which is a psalm of David. And we look at Psalm 72, which is a psalm, psalm of Solomon, one of the only two. I want to clear up one thing of confusion. I did mention it on the YouTube. If we look at Psalm 72, which is a psalm we are going to focus on today. At the end, in verse 20, it says, This concludes the prayers of David, the son of Jesse. Which is kind of weird because this is supposed to be a psalm about Solomon, right? Wait a second. How can this be about David if it's about Solomon? <gasps> the Bible got it wrong. Um, no, it didn't. We need to notice that the if you go to Psalm 73, you'll look at the superscript of the whole thing. It says, Book 3. In When we would look at the Old Testament, we look at Psalms, you'll notice Psalms is the largest of all the books in the Old Testament, the largest book in the entire Bible. So large that they had separated out into five books, five scrolls that would be laid out. Book 2 begins in chapter, or excuse me, Psalm 42, it's not chapters, but Psalm 42, and ends in Psalm 72. 
Of the Psalms that are there, there are 31 Psalms overall. 18 of them are from David. Therefore, David is the preeminent one who wrote in that book. And these books are are categorized by that of prayer. These are prayers to God. You can go through and, and kind of look. This idea of prayer happens throughout that. And so this subscript here at the end of Psalm 72 isn't really about Psalm 72, but rather the closing of this entirety of this book from Psalm 42 to Psalm 72, in which David wrote most of them. So we don't see a contradiction there. Little, little information for you. There are a lot of people who are out there always trying to tear down the Word of God, trying to find these little contradictions, trying to find these little ways to trip you up on your faith that are easily explained if we just look at the greater context. All right. So with that being said, I want us to read straight through Psalm 72, and then we want to gain context about what Psalm 72, and really many of these psalms that we read this week are about, okay? I think Psalm 72 encapsulates it pretty well. All right, verse 1. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. He will judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. The mountains will bring prosperity to the people. The hills, the fruit of righteousness. He will defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. He will crush the oppressor. He will endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations. He will be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. In his days, the righteous will flourish. Prosperity will abound till the moon is no more. He will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The desert tribes will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the distant shores will bring tribute to him. The kings of Sheba and Seba will present him gifts. All kings will bow down to him and all nations will serve him. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy, and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given him. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. Let grain abound throughout the land, but on tops of the hills may it sway. Let its fruit flourish like Lebanon. Let it thrive like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. All nations will be blessed through him, and they will call him blessed. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. All right, so we read the Psalm of Solomon, and we look and we see this, this plea that, number one, that this king will be just, that justice will reign through him, that the poor in the land will, will be lifted up, that those who are oppressed will be freed from their oppression. These are the promises that we are praying that the king will fulfill and will come through the king that God has appointed over the people of Israel. 
This is what's coming from the mouth of Solomon. This is what we hope for from everybody who's there. Now, I would suggest that in today's day and age, this very psalm can very easily be mischaracterized through the rhetoric of our age. There's a whole lot of talk about poor and oppressed and needy people in our country today. Would you guys agree? There's been a whole lot of talk about that. And how we're supposed to compassionately deal with this particular situation. And I, don't th- I think if we do not read it as it is intended through the, uh, the lens of the Word of God, we can come up with a worldly definition that doesn't match what God is actually saying. Because the question becomes, how will justice be administered? How will the poor be lifted up? How will he take up their cause and cause justice and the oppressor to go away? It's not really answered here. It's suggested. It's alluded to that that's the role of the king. How does this happen? I think it's very important that we look at context and understand the biblical understanding of where this comes from so we don't take a worldly definition to a godly problem. Turn with me, if you will, to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17 is the place where we're turning in Scripture when we're looking at when the kings of Israel were to be established. What were they supposed to be like? Now, please understand that Deuteronomy 17 happened before any kings would be in existence. Moses wrote this down by the hand of God as he's dictating the law 400 years before there would be even a king for this to apply to. How ironic, right? It's like God knew this was going to happen. So Deuteronomy 17 says this, starting in verse 14. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it and settled in it. And you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the priests, who are Levites. It is to be with him, and he's to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord as God and follow carefully all the words of this law, that these decrees, and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his brothers, and turn from the law to the right or to the left, then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. I think it's very important to note that this is the command that's given to the king. It ties directly to what we're talking about in Psalm 72. Now Solomon, obviously when we think about the whole wives, don't take many wives for yourself, Solomon failed. Terribly failed. Okay? 
And there would be huge consequences because of that failure. It also says he's not supposed to acquire for himself large amounts of gold. Uh, Solomon failed. Terribly failed. Spent 14 years building his palace as opposed to just seven years for the temple of God. As ornate as his palace would be. Right? So we see that Solomon, though inspired by God to write Psalm 72 and those things being true in it, himself had failings and fallings from this passage of Scripture that were going to affect Israel as a country in bad ways for years to come. Why is it important when we look at Deuteronomy 17, why is it important that last section talks about what the king is supposed to do? He is supposed to get the law from the priests. At minimum, this meant the book of Deuteronomy. At maximum, this was the whole of Genesis 2, Deuteronomy. And what he was supposed to do is to write on a scroll himself. This is the king's homework assignment. Kings had homework, at least given by God. Go to the priest, go to the Levite, get a scroll, and write the law for yourself. How many of you had to write verbatim stuff at school? Like, I have to write this down. I have to copy this exact thing, this entire paper. My hand hurts so bad. Right? How many of you had to do that? Raise your hand. Most of us, right? So most of us remember having to write and hating to do it. But the more that you use as far as the different types of senses... To, to write or read or remember, the more we remember, the more senses that are involved. If we just read it, we only remember a certain amount of it. If we read it and say it, we'll remember it a little bit more. But if we read it, say it, and write it, we remember it even more so. Because we're using different senses in the midst of it. We're kind of using the whole of ourselves. And so we see in this passage of Scripture where it was God's desire... For the king to kind of follow that. I don't want you to just know the law by hearing it from the priest. I want you to copy the law for yourself. And I don't want you to just copy the law. I want you continually to read it all the time during your kingship so that you will know the law that I have set forth and that you will not turn from it from the right or from the left so that your kingdom might be established for many generations according to the word of God. You want blessing for your own household and for the kingdom of Israel? This is how you do it. Now, what is contained within the word of the law? Well, it's the idea of this idea of oppression and poverty and whatnot is directly talked about within the law. Deuteronomy 28, turn there real quick. Well, we're going to camp there for a few minutes, right? Deuteronomy 28. Starting in verse 1. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all His commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. The ba- your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. 
You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction but flee from you in seven. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hands to. The Lord your God will bless you in the land he has given you. The Lord will establish you as his holy people. As he promised you on oath, if you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in his ways, then all the peoples on the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will fear you. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, and the crops of your ground in the land he swore to your forefathers to give you. The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty to send rain on your land in season and to bless all the work of your hands. You will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail if you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day and carefully follow them. You will always be at the top, never at the bottom. Do not turn aside from any of the commands I give you today to the right or to the left, following other gods and serving them. One of the things I want you guys to notice is that the blessing of the land, the blessing of the people, came directly to the obedience of God. The obedience of the Lord. A king who is reading this will understand, well, you know what? If I want the land to prosper, if I want there to be true justice, if I want to make sure that that things are going the way that God wants them to go, and so that my kingdom will be established from an earthly perspective, and the people will prosper, and the oppressor will not come, then I need to be obedient to God in all things. This was a covenantal promise from the kings of Israel to God himself. That's why we're looking at Deuteronomy. And so, when we look at these promises, they weren't just a matter of them creating the quote-unquote the right policies. It was about the obedience to God and the policies God has already provided in His Word. As a matter of fact, there's only 14 verses that deal with the blessing of God through obedience. The rest of the chapter of 28 is for the curses for disobedience. And it starts this way. However, verse 15, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all of his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And the next, I guess, uh, what are we talking about? Where are we at? 68. So we're, we're talking 68 minus 14, doing math early in the morning is a terrible thing to do. Um, 54. So we're at 54 verses that talk about the curses of God. And the curses far outnumber the blessing. Because God is wanting them to know, if you don't follow me, it's going to get really bad for you. It's going to get so bad for you, you're going to become impoverished, you're going to become oppressed. All of the things that Solomon is talking about in Psalm 72 is the very thing that God warns against By saying, don't be disobedient to me. It's why the king had the scroll written down and was supposed to meditate on it because God was the one who's going to provide the prosperity, the righteousness, the justice for the people of God so that they wouldn't be oppressed. When we read this, oftentimes, Psalm 72, we read it in an Americanized vacuum. 
We see key words that our culture uses today, such as need and prosperity, oppression especially. That's a key word today, right? And it's easy for us to want to invite that type of framework of thinking into the Scripture, but we can't. That's not the way it was written. The idea of oppression or poverty all was tied to the promises of God in the covenant that God gave the people of Israel and specifically the instructions that he gave the king of which David and Solomon were. Where we see these enthronement psalms. And so what we're really praying for when we're praying for the king, when we're talking about the king, is is a talk that they would be faithful to God because that's in the best interest of the people. If, by some chance, because guess what? Israel would have bad kings. (laughs) Just a few, right? Israel would have some bad kings over the years. Judah would have bad kings over the years when the kingdom would end up being split. When they had bad kings, what, what were they supposed to do? We read in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, the first six verses, it says, when all these blessings and curses I've set before you come upon you, and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. Notice, I'm dispersing you among the nations. What has happened as a result of that? The curse of God, right? These are the curses that God had promised. I'm going to make you flee. You're going to be oppressed. I'm going to scatter you among the nations just like I did the people before you because you've been unfaithful to me and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all of your heart and with all of your soul according to everything I command you today then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your fathers, and you will take possession of it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul and live. What a huge promise, right? All based on the faithfulness of God. And the king, the ruler, at that time, was supposed to be a vessel of God through his obedience to bring prosperity and blessing to the people of God. This is what Psalm 72 is all about. This is the context of it. As a matter of fact, we see this working out in the kings. So let's look and see how the kings talk about the kings that come. We're just going to look at one chapter because there are four kings, two from Judah, two from Israel that show up there and a lot of different things are said about them. So first Kings chapter 15. It was, was it last year we went through the histories, Mark? I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah, so we went through the histories last year. Those of you who were with us last year, we went through the kings together. And so this will sound somewhat familiar because we did that. But it's so important to see how this is all tied together, even in this prayer of Solomon, that this is what he's truly asking for. So, 1 Kings 15. And we're going to read the first eight verses because it talks about Abijah, king of Judah. In the 18th year of the reign of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, Abijah became king of Judah. Now, Jeroboam was the king in Israel while 
Abijah is now the king over Judah. And he reigned in Jerusalem three years, and his mother's name was Micaiah, daughter of Abishalom. He committed all the sins his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, and as his heart as the heart of David, his forefather, had been. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him and by making Jerusalem strong. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. That's an interesting prologue to this king, isn't it? Number one, He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. How did he do evil? He didn't follow God. And yet, because of David's faithfulness, we're about four generations removed from David at this point, because of David's faithfulness, God was still honoring David. He wasn't even honoring Abijah. He was saying, Abijah, you're kind of a scoundrel. But because of David, because of him being wholeheartedly devoted to me, I'm still going to bless to this generation and I'm going to leave you a son on the throne. So we go to the next king, also of Judah. So skip down to verse 9. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel. So Jeroboam is still king of Israel happening when somebody else becomes king of Judah. Asa became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem 41 years. His grandmother's name was Micaiah, daughter of Abishalom. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. He expelled the male shrine prostitutes from the land. He got rid of all the idols his fathers had made. He even deposed his grandmother, Micaiah, for her position as queen mother because she had made a repulsive Asherah pole. Asa cut the pole down and burned it in the Kindred Valley. Although he did not remove the high places, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all of his life. He brought, he brought in, he bought, brought into the temple of the Lord the silver and the gold and the articles that he and his father had dedicated. So we see a snapshot. What made Asa right before God? It was because he followed the Lord all the days of his life. So let's go to the kings of Israel during the same time, going down to verse 25. Nadab, son of Jeroboam, became king of Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years, and he did evil in the sights of the, in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of his father and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit. This sin was the worship of these calf idols that were up at the top of Israel and at the bottom of Israel. Okay? And so these calf idols are, are what he led the people of Israel into sin so they wouldn't come to Jerusalem to worship God at his holy mountain. And Nadab continued that. And what it was he called? He was called evil because of his actions. You think good things are going to happen to Israel as a result of that? Nope. Not according to the promises in Deuteronomy. So we continue further on. And we go down to uh, verses 33 and 34 to the next king of Israel because he doesn't last that long. 
In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Basha, son of Ahijah, became king of all of Israel in Tizra, and he reigned 24 years. And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of Jeroboam, and in his sin which he had caused Israel to commit. And why do I share all of this? Because there's not a moral equivalency to people that we support in our politics in any nation. The people of Israel and the people of Judah were under a kingship. And therefore, it was determined through succession of kings or through political uh, maneuvering, if you killed the king and kind of took his power, it was through those families by which you gained that power and everybody else was subjugated to them. But even they are evaluated inside the Word of God concerning what they did as good or evil based upon what they did during their reign. Who they regarded. The fact that they regarded God spoke well of them. They regarded God and therefore they were a good king because they were following what God had laid forth in His Word concerning policies for the people for their prosperity for their freedom, for their lack of oppression, so they could have the things that God wanted to give His people. The one thing that we struggle with in America, especially as Christians, is this idea of politics and religion mixing together. We are called, as a people of God, to evaluate the people who are going to be elected. We are different than Israel. The people of Israel were under a monarchy. We are not. Therefore, we have a part in this process. But let me tell you something. The parties that are involved and the platforms and the things that they they put forth are not morally equal. All you have to do is read the party platforms and not read them to which one you like or dislike. We are supposed to be reading them according to the Word of God. The same way in which the kings were supposed to do. To read the Word of God, to know it by heart, so that when we see policies that are put forth by the people whom we are called to elect in this great country in which we live, we are not looking to our priorities, we're looking to God's priorities. Because I truly believe that God still blesses nations that follow Him. I really do. And for so long as you and I have the privilege of being a part of that, We should be evaluating all things in the light of God's Word, not the rhetoric of our politicians. I don't care whether you like their rhetoric or don't like their rhetoric. You know what's interesting about all of these kings I just mentioned? We don't see any of their speeches. We don't know how they sounded. If you liked them, if you didn't like them, if they were brash, if they were arrogant, if they were humble, we don't know. You know what we do know? God counted them as good or evil based upon their obedience to His Word despite whatever rhetoric you heard from them. 
You and I as believers in Jesus Christ need to start looking at our political landscape, which has become far too political. We've got politics in everything now. I can't even watch a baseball game without getting politics in it. How many of you are tired of that? I know I am. I'm sick of politics being everywhere. I want to just watch a game. Shut up. Right? But I also want godly leaders. Because I want our nation to prosper. You know why? Because when our nation prospers, the people praise God more. It's just the truth. When, when our nation does well, we, we get to see the blessing in the hand of God. And as believers, guess what? We rejoice over those times, don't we? I mean, come on. It hasn't been that long. We look back going like, man, this is great. Things are going awesome right now. God has blessed this nation and blessed where we are. Can you guys agree that we all have experienced that in our lifetime? And what a great blessing that is, right? Having good leaders helps us praise God more. Because we receive the blessing of the obedience of those leaders toward the things of God in the nation in which we live. God honors that even to this day. So we got to get past our mindset that somehow there's this moral equivalency between a Democratic platform or a Republican platform or a Green platform or a constitutional platform. You know, we have like nine different parties in the United States. You guys realize that, right? Libertarian. I can name any of them off the top of my head. And some of you are like, he's talking politics in the pulpit. No, I'm talking what our responsibility as Christians are from the pulpit to our politics. If you read the platforms of these parties, I am sorry, they are not morally equivalent to one another. They do not serve the interests of God in the same way. And as believers in Christ, it is our duty to evaluate it within the Word of God so that we're electing leaders that most line up according to being obedient to His Word. Is it going to be a perfect process? Nope. Absolutely not. But I'm tired of hearing that it doesn't matter who you vote for, because it is. It does matter who you vote for. And no, they're not the same. And no, I haven't endorsed anybody here. But you're foolish if you think that, that you can go through those platforms and say, oh, he's totally talking about this person. Right? As believers in Christ, we owe it to God to do our due diligence. Now, what happens? Because whether we're talking last election cycle or this current election cycle, what happens when we've prayed, we say, we believe that looking at these platforms, this is who we're voting for. We vote for that person based upon what we believe to be the biblical obedience that they're going to follow through on, not the rhetoric. Get over the rhetoric. Like I said, you don't find it in the Word of God. You find very few speeches in the Word of God concerning their promises as king, as politicians. You just don't see it. So let's get that out of our mind. We've got to look at the actions, because that's what God is looking at. 
He was evil because of what he did. He was good because of what he did. So I want you guys to turn with me. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. So you're going to have to adjust that in the back. I wrote, down, wrote you down the wrong scripture references back there. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. There have been a lot. Last, I would say, I don't know, probably about the last 10 years, I have absolutely abhorred, and I mean that 100%, the rhetoric that has come from people who profess Christ and their mouth concerning those who are leading our nation, our government, in our, in our state, in our city, wherever it's at. I abhor it. I hate it. I've heard so many terrible things that are unbecoming of a people of God. And I want to tell you why it's wrong. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I'm not lying. And as a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Uh, Let me tell you, that does not characterize the greater community of Christ in the last 10 years as it pertains to our leadership. I don't care if you voted Democrat or Republican. I have heard more rhetoric, more evil talk toward our leaders. More prayers for their downfall and that terrible things might happen to them. It is unbecoming a Christian people to treat anyone in this way, especially the leaders that God has put over us. And Paul tells us exactly why. And first, here's what I want you to do. Request, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving. How many of you have been thankful for our leaders that are over our country, whether you agree with their politics or not? Because this is written at a time, please understand, the Roman king, the Roman emperor who is there is not a Christian. The Roman emperor who is there is going to eventually take the life of Paul and many of the early Christians. It's a crazy thought, right? And here Paul is saying, first thing you should do, thank God for them. Pray for them. You know why? Because when you disparage them, I'm not talking about disparaging their policies. Please forgive me for delineating between the two, but there's a difference between the policies that they support and the persons that they are. But you and I, because we live in this highly political time, oftentimes don't divide the two. We treat the person as their policy. He did evil, but he can be made good by God. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, the same as you and me. 
And when you and I don't pray for them, we take God out of the process of our leadership of our nation. We pray for curses and not blessing. Man, can you imagine if we had leadership in this nation that maybe got into office under one pretense and the nation and the Christians who were in this nation were faithfully praying for God to change their heart. They had this coming to Jesus moment, truly coming to Christ, transform them from the inside out. Could you imagine what would happen? Same person in office. You're not praying for that? We're just praying that he'll be taken out, defeated, because we don't agree. Shame on us Christians on both of those respects when we don't evaluate according to the word of God, knowing that the blessings of God, of prosperity, of not being oppressed, is tied to the faithfulness of our leaders. And shame on us if we haven't invited God to pray for those leaders, local, statewide, nationally, because we're so tied up in seeing them as their policies, which may be evil, which may be wrong, which may be abhorrent to God, but they're still made in the image of God. And God, according to the Word, wants everyone to be saved, even that politician you can't stand. And you and I as believers in Christ are called to be a political people in so much that we want good policies because good, godly policies benefit everybody. And for those leaders who may not be making good and godly policies, and for those who are, we're called to pray for them. We're called to thank God for them. We are called for the blessing of God. Why? Because God wants all men to be saved. Can you say that you've wanted that for your leaders in the last 10 years? Sincerely, that you've been home, that you've prayed for those leaders, that you've wanted God to touch those leaders. What would happen to our city, to our state, to our nation, if you and I committed to pray for our leaders, that they would come to know Jesus Christ? That God would begin to transform their hearts so that their policies would reflect the goodness of God for the benefit of the people that they're serving. How different do you think this world would begin to do if we truly believe God could change their hearts? This is why Paul prayed for the leaders of Rome, though they weren't even close to being Christians didn't even have policies that would reflect anything godly. That's why you and I should pray for our leaders today. And we should be intimately involved in the process and be looking at the issues and events that are there to find out what lines up most godly and not just say it's a personality thing because there have been bad personalities on every ticket. I'm sorry. There really have been. And if I went solely with their personalities, they just rubbed me the wrong way. And I didn't look at what they were actually supporting and comparing it to the Word of God. I haven't done my due diligence. How do you see your leaders? 
that God has appointed over you? How should you see them? And do you really believe God can change their hearts? That's really what this psalm is all about. The Psalm 72, going back and understanding it within the context of what is talked about. We want good leaders that are following God because following God leads to the blessing of God that he's promised to his people, which leads to praise that God has installed this ruler, this leader. We always look back to our great leaders, right? With such, no matter what they've gone through at that time, we look back and we say, man, that was a really good leader. Even though at the time he might have been much maligned, but he did what God wanted him to do. We look back with fondness over those people, don't we? Do we really believe that God can change the heart of the leaders to be like that? That's what we're challenged with in this psalm, in all these psalms that we looked at this past week. Just stand with me. Oh, how do you treat the leadership? How do you? Not just there, here. How do you think of me and Mark? Because how you think of the leaders that are over us nationally is easily transferred to your leadership within the church. You guys may not realize that, but it's true. If you can hold in derision those who are leading over you because of the way that they've acted or said, you'll easily foist that same type of thing upon Mark and myself when we have a bad day, which we will. Clemson doesn't win all the time. (laughs) Are we going to pray for our leaders? Are we going to make a commitment to pray for their good? Are we going to be thankful for them? Yeah, we want things to change. I would love to see policies change that are ungodly in this nation. I'd love to see that. I want us to make sure that we're electing good leaders here. But whoever is elected, I'm going to pray for. Because if God grabs a hold of them, whoever won the ballot box, it won't matter if God gets a hold of their heart. It won't matter. Do we believe that God transforms people in that way? Then you should pray. Let's pray together. God, I just want to thank you for today. This mixture of politics and religion is tricky. So we oftentimes avoid it or skew it one way or another, make everything political and less religious or make everything religious and less political. And you've called us to do both. So help us to do it in such a way that we'll honor you because we should be looking to you. Help us if we've avoided looking at the issues and have just grown into a pattern of supporting whatever party and not really looking at, do their policies line up with what your word says? Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to do it faithfully. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that if we have leaders above us that we're in disagreement with, maybe they're not part of our party or we don't like their policies or their rhetoric or we're worried about the direction that they're taking us, God, help us to remember that we are called to pray for them for their good, to be thankful for them, to have you change their hearts that they might come to know Jesus Christ. I pray that for every leader 
Every leader in our city government, every leader in our state government, every leader in our national government, Lord, I pray right now for their good that you would turn their hearts toward Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that you right now would convict each of them of their sin and their need for Jesus, that you would transform them from the inside out. And by doing so, by creating godly leaders through the power of Jesus Christ, we would see the transformation of this nation the way you want it to be, that we would receive the blessing that we would uh, stop the oppression, that we would have true justice, that we would see poverty change, not because of any great policy that's given, but because of people who have given their lives to Jesus Christ and are looking out for your interests and the blessing that comes only through you. God, help us, I pray. Be the people of God in this time that we might honor you in all things and bring glory to God because of Jesus Christ and because of the leaders that you've placed in front of us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer today, our elders are going to be up front for prayer. We would encourage you to come and pray about anything. If you need to come and pray about other things that are happening in your life or even just your attitude that you've been having toward leaders, whoever they may be, city, local, national, whatever, come and pray with us. Also, if you want me over at Thanksgiving to talk about politics and religion, (laughs) me and my family are available. God bless you guys. Have a great week.